0: We'll have a seat. And howdy! howdy. My name is Kevin Barham, I'm the college pastor here, and I want to give one more special thanks to our fathers this morning. So let's give all the fathers a round of applause. Thank you, thank you for who you are and what you do. Um, this message will have some Father's Day portions in it, but it is not entirely a Father's Day sermon. So even if your daddy is not here, um, you can still get something out of this morning. But there will be a Father's Day moment. Look for it uh, in the middle of the sermon. We're going to be continuing our uh, series of legacies, looking at great lives through the through the life of the Bible, and we're looking at Esther for these three weeks in the middle here. So if you have a Bible, flip over to Esther chapter 4, um, or a phone or an app, that's Esther chapter 4, and you may be saying, Kevin, I don't know where Esther is. That's okay. If you go to the mid- middle of your Bible, you'll find Psalms, and you just go to the left of Psalms, after Ezra and Nehemiah, you get Esther. I mean, Esther chapter 4, um, I'm going to read a little bit for us, and then jump in. Esther chapter 4, starting in verse 4. Now, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathek, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what, what this was and why it was. Hathak went to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened. And the exact sum of money that Haman had promised the treasury into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. And Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written issue in Susa for their destruction. That he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go into the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people And Hathik went and told Esther and what Mordecai had said, and Esther spoke to Hathik and communicated to him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the king's people and the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there's but one law to be put to death, except one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he might live. But as for me, I've not been called to come into the king for these 30 days." And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to this kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to... Reply to Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, a night and a day, and I my, and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. What a great line. Let me pray for us one more time. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. And I pray that as we open your word, you would open our hearts, that we might be instructed and inspired to live lives fully for you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, when I was in college, uh, one summer, several friends of mine decided to rent a house in Boulder, Colorado. And so we rented a house in Boulder, Colorado, and uh, they had gone there about two or three weeks before me and, and got situated in the home. Now, the funny part about this house is that there was no furniture in it, not a single piece of furniture, not bedding, not couches, no chairs. But in college, this is what you do. You sublease a house in the middle of nowhere, and you just spend the summer there. And so we subleased it. We got up there. They had settled their spots, sleeping in sleeping bags in random rooms. And then I arrived, and they showed me my spot. Now, there was no air conditioning in this house in Colorado. And you may be thinking, well, isn't it cool up there? Not in the summer, you know? And so I remember the first night, laying with the windows open on this open sleeping bag, just sweating. Just sweating you know, in the middle of the night. And then suddenly about 3 a.m. I hear um, a siren go by. Woo, 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 woo. And I'm like, that was nuts. And then two minutes later, another siren go by, and then another siren go by. And I look over to my friend, and I'm like, does this happen every night? And he's like, oh, yeah, you'll get used to it. And I'm like, where did I land, right? And then the next morning, we pop up, and, and my friends tell me, okay, we are going cliff jumping. Now, I had never been cliff jumping, and I had barely slept all night, but in this woozy state, I go, all right, let's go. And so they say, we're going to load up in your car because you've got a full tank of gas. You just got here. You still got money and and, and hope, you know. So so we're going to load into your car, and we're going to drive up. And so we drive up the side of this mountain, like going up all of these you know, kind of long mountain passes, and we get to an area where there uh, is, a, is a dam. And at the top of the dam, there's a place where people could jump. It said no jumping, but but you could jump, and there was water beneath it, and we stand there on the, on the edge, me and my buddies, um, all looking over the edge of this cliff, and if you've ever been there with a bunch of guys, there's that moment where you go, okay, who's, who's the toughest among us, right? Like, who's, who's going to be the first lemming off the edge of this cliff, and, and we look over like, okay, who's, who's going to take the dive? And all of us step back and kind of reassess ourselves, like, okay, who's going to go first? And in that moment, we faced a turning point. Who was going to take the jump? Were we going to jump or were we going to chicken out? As we stood there kind of milling amongst ourselves, there was one dude who took the first jump. I remember him, he ran beside us. He goes, you punks! And he runs and jumps and does a gainer, right? So it's jumping up and diving in backwards. I'm like... You are insane. You're going to die. Let's watch, gentlemen. And so we all get to the side and watch him plummet. We're thinking, is he going to die? Is he going to be impaled on a rock? And he dives in, pops up, he's fine. And the rest of us, we're all encouraged to jump too, right? The rest of us were all going, okay, if he can do it, we're going to do it. So we start jumping and having this incredible moment where we are taking the plunge. We had faced a turning point and then took the plunge. And the reason I start there is simply for this reason. We all face turning points in life. We all face moments where we we're encountering a tough situation. A tough situation that demands a response. And the question is this, are you going to make an impact? Or are you going to... to To recoil at the challenge. Turning points are defined as this. A time at which a decisive change in a situation occurs, especially with beneficial results. It's a crossroads. It's a critical moment. It's a decisive moment. It's a moment of truth. It's a landmark moment for us. And the reason I start there is because that is where we find ourselves in the story of Esther. It's a turning point. It is a critical moment when a decision must be made. And I'll tell you this about this turning point. Turning points in life always come when the crisis you face and the opportunity you take, right in the middle of the crisis you face and the opportunity you, ta- you make or you take, is the turning point. And it's the decision you make. In between the crisis you face and the decision you make is the turning point. Right there in the middle. And that's where we find Esther. Where she has a a turning point decision. Will she make a decision to stand for her people and follow God? Will she make a splash with her life? Or will she take a step back? Will she recoil at the challenge? And I'll tell you this. If you're like me, you want to make a splash in life. You want to make a meaningful impact. You want your life to count for something. And there's a reason for that. Is because you were created to make an impact. Your life is created by God, and you are created to make a significant impact in the world. Kevin, are you sure about that? Yeah, I've got a verse, all right? Ephesians 2 8 through 10 is one of my favorite passages in Scripture, and it says this For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that's not of yourself, it's not of your own doing. So that no one can boast. See, God saved you out of your sin. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you're saved. And it's by grace. It's a gift. You've been saved by grace through faith. And it's not of your own doing. So you can't brag about it. You can't boast about it. You can't say, look how awesome I am. I found grace. No, no. It's a gift of God. So that no one can boast. And then verse 10. For we... Are his workmanship. The Greek word poema. It's like you're his poem. If you don't like that, you're his rocking song, right? You're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. You see, God saved you by grace. And he has set you apart and he has plans for you. He has works for you to engage in. He has a life for you to live. See, once you're saved, you're not done. It's just the starting point. And that starting point in life represents in many of us a turning point. Will you follow God and engage in the works that he has for you? Or will you shrink back in fear, letting other people take a run at what God has in life? I'll tell you what, you all face turning points. In this moment, in this story, Esther faces a turning point. Last week we met Esther. Esther is the queen of Persia. She's married to a man named Xerxes who was a dark king, a a powerful man who who influenced his will the way that he wanted to in the world. He ruled a gigantic region from, from India to Ethiopia, up all the way to Greece, And right before this section that we we have, some five years before we read this section, Esther was brought into the king's palace. She was crowned queen, but we didn't know why. We didn't know what purpose she had in this place. All we knew is that this woman was taken into the king's palace. She found favor, and she was made queen of a nation. And we don't know what's going to happen in her life. And I'll tell you what, that is so common in most of our lives. We don't know why God has moved circumstances the way that He has, but suddenly He 's put us in a place, and it 's in that place that God is using to make an impact. And for Esther, we see the opportunity rise, and the opportunity arises in a, in a difficult way. It starts with a crisis. See in Esther chapter two, verse 19, we see several moments descend. Into a crisis moment where Esther has to respond. I want to paint the picture for this crisis. In Esther chapter 2, verse 21, we see the crisis begin, where we see a good, good act go unrewarded. Esther chapter 2, verse 21, it says this Now in those days, as Mordecai was sitting in the king's gate, now Mordecai was Esther's cousin, but he raised Esther like his own daughter, he cared for her, he provided for her. And at this point, Esther is already queen, and he is sitting at the king's gate. That's the place where where business took place. That's that's their court of law. It's their authority moment. It's their Wall Street, their court system. It's all there at the king's gate. And Bigfin and Teresh, two bad guys, two thugs. They just sound like thugs. Two of the king's units who guarded the threshold became angry and sought to lay hands on King Asusaris. That's King Xerxes. And they came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai, now when the affair was investigated and found it to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king. So Mordecai at this moment, he reports a threat on the king's life. And he tells them, and, and it's, it says it's recorded in the book of Chronicles of the, of the king, so the king knew that he had, his life had been spared, but what's so ironic in this moment is that he's not rewarded. I mean, typically, if you were to save the life of a king, you would get some sort of reward, whether it's monetary reward or a position, but, but literally Mordecai gets nothing. And over for the next four years, he goes unrewarded, but not only is good going unrewarded, secondly, we see an evil man get elevated. Esther chapter three verse one. It says, "After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him." See, there, there's some. When the Bible has a detail, you've got to focus in on the detail to say, "Why did you include that detail?" It says Haman was an Agagite. That was a historic enemy of the nation of Israel. It was a group of kings that that opposed the nation of Israel when they were setting up their, their place in the promised land. And this historic enemy rises into a place of prominence. And he goes around and he says, everyone should bow down to me because I'm the man, right? I was appointed by the king. Everyone should bow down to me. But Mordecai refused to bow down and pay homage to Haman. Verse 3, now the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see if Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew and that he wasn't going to bow. Verse 5, and when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow nor pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Because he was the queen's brother. Cousin, so he wasn't going to kill him. So as they made, so as made known to him the people of Mordecai. So he, they told him, hey, Mordecai is a Jewish guy. Now Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the entire kingdom of Ahasuerus. So the crisis arises, where the good that Mordecai did goes unrewarded. But not only did his good go unrewarded, secondly, an evil person is elevated, and, and this person is sought to destroy every one of the Jews. It's a, it's a genocide at this point in history. And as I read those things, you, you, you may be saying to yourself the same thing that I always say to myself. Why does it feel like good guys finish last? Right? Why does it feel like the right thing isn't always rewarded in the right time? And if you've ever felt that way, If you've ever asked the question, why does it feel like good guys finish last, you're not alone. Job, Job 21, 7 says it this way, why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Why is it that bad people sometimes seem to be winning? Jeremiah says it this way, righteous are you, O Lord. Okay, God, you're good. I know you're good when I complain to you. You're good when I complain. Let me just complain, though, all right? Yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all of the treacherous thrive? Have you ever wondered that? Why does it feel like in this snapshot in, mo- in time, it feels like every evil person is winning? Now, I've, I've wondered that. Have you wondered that? I was reading several years ago uh, when I was in, in college and I was dating, but I wasn't getting married and I was just wondering about life and I read an article by askmen.com I don't don't recommend that article but I just read it and asked the question do do bad guys always get the girl and the answer according to askmen was yeah it does right And girls, you can feel the same way. You'd be like, okay, I'm I'm walking through life. I'm trying to honor the Lord with my life. I'm trying to do the right thing. And it seems like the bad girl gets the guy, right? It feels like the wrong person is always winning. It feels like if I'm doing the right thing, I will only be losing. It can feel that way sometimes. But see, the, the truth is this. The crisis is an opportunity in disguise. Every challenge you face, every crisis you face in life is actually an opportunity in disguise. See, the good guy doesn't finish last. See, we, if you've read the end of the book, the Bible, Jesus wins, right? See, evil will be stopped. Wrong will be punished. Maybe not in the time that we want. And what we have to see is that there's, there's a crisis but the crisis is merely an opportunity in disguise. Tim Keller in his book *Every Good Endeavor* writes this: We we are not to choose our jobs and conduct our work to fulfill ourselves and accrue power. For being called by God to do something is empowering enough. We are to see work as a way to serve of our service to God and our neighbor. And so we should both choose and conduct our work in accordance with that purpose. The question regarding our choice of work is no longer what will make me the most money and give me the most status. As we look at our work and we look at our life, we are not here to chase a ladder or chase fame. He says, this is the question you need to ask yourself. The question must be, how with my existing abilities and opportunities can I be of greatest service to other people knowing what I do of God's will, and of human need. He says, if you want to know what impact you need to make with your life, you need to ask yourself this question. As I look at the needs of the world, as I look at the crises that are across the world, and I look at my own gifts and abilities, where do I fit? If evil people are winning, that is an opportunity for me to step in with my gifts and abilities. If the wrong people are running the ship, it is my opportunity to step in with my gifts and abilities. See, there's, for every one of us, a crisis we face in life. And sometimes that, that challenge, that burden you feel, is actually the place where God wants you to step in the most. See, there's always a crisis we face. But secondly, we see that there's an opportunity that we can take. There's an opportunity right here in front of both Mordecai and Esther to step in. Chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now when Mordecai learned everything that had been done, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went into the midst of the city, and he cried out in a loud and bitter cry. And he went to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and his decree reached, There was great mourning among the Jews and fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them put on sackcloth and ashes. You see, Mordecai went and wept at this crisis. When you see the crisis of the world, do you weep? When you see the pain that our world faces, do you weep? Do you lament? Mordecai does, and Esther hears of it. And she sends some of her people, hey, go figure out why Mordecai is weeping. What's going on here? And he gives her the decree. He gives her everything that's been decreed against them. And Esther says, well, I don't know what you want me to do. But I'm not going into the king's presence. You see, to go to the king's presence, you had to be summoned by name. And if he didn't summon you and you walked into that place, he would kill you. And at that moment, Mordecai responds with the best dad moment imaginable. Now, he wasn't her dad, but he literally had the best dad moment possible. He does what every good father should do with his kids. The first thing he did in verse 13 is he says this. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself. That in the king's palace, you will escape any more than all of the Jews. The first thing he says to Esther is this. The problem is real, and you're not immune. The problem is real, and you're not immune. Every time your kids fight at home, what do you tell them when they break a lamp or break something in, the, in their rage? What do you tell them? The problem is real, son. You broke my lamp and now I will break you, right? Now you just, but you, you align them with reality, right? You tell them like, this is a problem and you've got to face this problem. The problem is real. A good dad looks at their son, looks at their daughter and says, look, the problems of the world are real. We don't live in fantasy fairyland. There are very real problems that we face as humanity, and you've got to see them. The The opportunity to first see the problem is so important. The problem is real, but secondly, you have an opportunity to play a part. Verse 14, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place but you and your father's house will perish. Isn't that so interesting? He says to her, you have an opportunity to play a part. What he doesn't say is this relies on you. He doesn't say, Esther, if you do nothing, we're all going to perish. He doesn't say that. Do you hear what he says? He says, relief and deliverance are going to come from another place. He says, not exactly, but insinuating, God has a plan of rescue. God's going to rescue us. God's going to provide for us. Relief and deliverance will come from another place. But listen, you have an opportunity to play a part. You could make it a great impact. And number three, who knows? And who knows, in verse 14, whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? You see, most of our life comes as opportunities, not certainties. Most of great opportunities in life come as opportunities and not certainties. Do you know if God is going to be for you in this moment? I don't know. And most of our stories of adventure, our hero or heroine, feels like they're living this charmed life. Like there's a guarantee of success. You know, Superman, who comes from planet Krypton, saves his daddy at a young age. Samson, who who does great things as a young baby, kills a snake, right? Right? Rapunzel with her long hair that she's blessed with, like you just know like she's going to do something great. See, most of our fantasy stories assume some hero lives this charmed life and they'll make a great contribution because they have something in them that's significant even at a young age. I'll tell you what, your greatest contribution is not based on the scale of the moment. It's on your faithfulness to God's assignment. The significance of your life Will not be judged by how big of an impact you make. It'll be judged based on your faithfulness to those moments God puts right in front of you. So, what does Mordecai do? He shows Esther the pain of the world, her opportunity to play a part, and says, Who knows? This might be your moment. For many of us, um, you've had those significant dad moments. I remember when I was a junior in high school, I had a terrible year. And I was a jerk face. Um, that whole year of high school, just right jerk face across that, you know, yearbook picture. Because I was mad that life wasn't going my way, that I wasn't who I wanted to be, that things weren't turning out how I wanted to. And I remember one moment, my dad brought me into the car. He says, get in the car. And dad says, get in the car. You're like, all right, I'm getting in the car, all right? And I sit there and I resigned in my mind to say nothing. And we drive around and my dad goes, what's the problem? Um, He's mm-hmm. like, do you realize that you're, you're not making any impact anywhere with this attitude? And you've got so many opportunities right in front of you. And I resigned in my mind to say nothing. And we drove for half an hour around the neighborhood in the car. I remember getting out of the car after saying nothing to my dad for that whole time. But that moment was solidified in my mind where my dad said, you know what, Kevin? I'm going to sit here right beside you. And you may not want to make an impact with your life. But I'm going to try to help you. I remember several, the next year, my senior year, things were going very well. But I was a nicer kid at the time. And I'd just run some really bad races, things did not go well. And I remember my dad brought me up to my sister's room. My sister had gone off to college, and so it was an empty room. And he said, lay on the bed. And he he's sat in the corner, and he goes, close your eyes. You think about your life. I want you to think about what you're doing. And you to think about where you can go. I want you to think about these next races and the opportunity and the impact that you can make in this next moment. I want you to think about it. And like a good dad, he just brought me in, set me down, and said, Kevin, you can make an impact. It may feel like an impasse, but you can make an impact. For some of you, you haven't had those dad moments, but those moments were so memorable to, to me. You know, like, Kevin, I've never had a dad like that. Well, maybe you have an uncle like that. I remember when I was in college, I spent several summers in, in Colorado, and my uncle opened his home to me. He invited me in. He basically paid my way. I worked with my cousin painting houses, and then he gave me all of these Christian books. And he said to me, I'm not one that has all the right words to say, but I, when I read something good, I can pass that on. And so I spent the entire summer listening to books on tape, <laughs> reading, painting houses and reading these books he gave me. And a couple times over the summer, we'd go on these mountain hikes. And we would just talk. Last year, uh, one of my other uncles passed away. And and my Uncle Jim and my Aunt Nancy came in from Colorado. And and they hadn't met my kids yet. They hadn't met my family yet. And I walk over to my uncle as he comes in. I give him a big old hug. And I, I said to him, I said, do you know the impact you made on my life? And they looked at me like I was crazy. And I go, sit down. That time in college, I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know what life was about. But I saw that Christianity was real in your life. And you spoke life into me. And hope into me. And they looked at me like I was crazy. Man, aunt goes, okay, this is sweet. I got to go. Y'all stay here and keep talking. And, and for the next hour, two hours... I sat there with my uncle and just talked about the impact that he had made in my life. How thankful I was that this man spoke truth and life and love and hope and opportunity into me. You see, that's what a great man does. He looks at a person in a moment of crisis and speaks to the potential, speaks to the opportunity and he just laid it in front of me. You can make an impact for the Lord. You can make an impact with your life. You know what I want to do for my kids? I don't want them just to get a good job. I don't want them just to marry the nice girl or nice guy. You know what I want for my kids? A life-changing impact with the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ to know Jesus Christ and to make him known across the world. I don't want them to merely live a good life. I want them to live an impactful life, a powerful life. You know what it takes? Dad moments or mom moments where people with a father's heart, a mother's heart, walks beside a kid and says, you could rise for a moment like this. And Esther takes that moment and says, okay, okay, I will go. You fast and pray. And if I die, I die. Will she die? No, the story goes on. Like she's going to live. But buried in chapter 3, verse 7, there's a glimmer of hope. In chapter 3, verse 7, it says this. It's a verse most of you would probably pass over. It says in the first month which is the month of Nisan. In the twelfth year, king of Susuris, they cast pur—that that is, they cast lots before Haman, day after day, and they cast it until the twelfth the month, which is the month of Adar. This is the declaration of when the Jews are going to be annihilated. But what's fascinating is this little word that you would pass over, and so would I, the month of Nisan. It's not a car. For the Jew, as they're reading this, this phrase would have jumped off the page. The month of Nisan? See, for the Jews, the month of Nisan was the month of Passover. See, Passover was the greatest day of victory for the Jewish nation. If you're familiar at all with Moses, the people were enslaved in Egypt. And then Moses rose and said, let my people go, right? Went through a series of plagues. And finally, on Passover, the final plague, the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh said, you can go. And the entire nation was led into freedom. So if you're reading this story as a Jew, when they, they declare the moment of death, they said, and it was the month of Passover, It was the moment of your greatest day of celebration. Okay, you're not getting it. In order to push it one level deeper, we have to go to Will Smith. And Will Smith battling aliens. Um, Not Will Smith battling aliens in After Earth. um, Good dad moment. Um, Not Will Smith in Men in Black 3. But We've got to go all the way back to 1996 where Will Smith is battling aliens in the movie Independence Day. You see, in, in this movie, Independence Day, the, the story opens up with, with aliens coming all over the earth and, and blowing up cities, right? It, it, it's a bad go. And they're wondering, will anyone rise and, and save the world? And the question is, can anyone defeat this great enemy? Can anyone stand against these aliens that have the power to destroy Washington, D.C.? You know, that's what that picture is on the left. But the name of the movie is Independence Day, right? You know, and the main actor is Will Smith. You know Will Smith is not going to lose on Independence Day, right? And so all through the movie, it's like, you know, the 1st of July, the 2nd of July, the 3rd of July. And they're like, will we win? It seems like all is lost. And then all of a sudden, July 4th lands, the president of the United States stands up and says, we will fight them and the world will know. It's our Independence Day, right? You're like, oh, man, that's good. That's good. It's July 4th. If you're a, if you're a Jewish person reading this story, and it says the month of Nisan, you're like, oh, I know. Buried in the midst of tragedy is an opportunity. Although it feels like there's only victims, there's hope. There's something that can happen. There's, there's a ray of hope. There's a glimmer of hope in a very dark season. And I'll tell you what. In every one of our lives, the chips may look down, but that's not the end of the story. One of the darkest moments in history was the death of Jesus Christ. He was on a cross between two thieves, killed. All of his boys ran in fear because they thought, there is no light at the end of this tunnel. There is no hope in the midst of this dark place. But three days later, the stone rolled away. He walked out in victory, bringing freedom to all of humanity. Several years ago, I was uh, one of the first kind of talks I ever listened to was uh, from a from a preacher who was quoting an old um, I don't know a friend of his, and he says, "You know, it may look dark, but that's only Friday. Friday, Sundays are coming." And for the next 30 minutes, he said this pastor used three, a three-word phrase to bury into our minds that Friday looked bad, but Sunday was coming. He said that Friday looked dark. The African-American preacher, It's my best impersonation. Friday looked dark. The disciples were running around. We didn't know what was going to happen, but that was only Friday. Friday, Sunday's a coming. He said, for the next 30 minutes, this man just said, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Friday, Sunday's coming. I'll tell you what, Christian, the crisis of the world looks bad. There is an opportunity to play a part, but that's Friday. There's a great, glorious return of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, he will wipe away every tear. He will fix every problem, and you and I are in the midst of the turning point. There's a crisis we face, an opportunity we can take, and right in the middle, there's a decision you make. What part will you play? I tell you what, God has great plans for your life, but it requires a turning point decision where you say, Lord, I'm going to step out. So that means you may step up in your work and say, you know what? No one in my work represents Christ. I'm going to take the hard step and say, you know what? I will be unapologetically Christian in my workplace. For some of you, it's with your kids. There's that conversation with your son or your daughter that you have put off. You do not want to engage with it. It's so challenging. And that is the opportunity for you to step in and say, Lord, it is so hard to address this problem, but I'm going to step in. Maybe it's with a family member. Or for some of you, You've been on the fence about what it looks like to to be a Christian, to walk with God. And this is your turning point moment. Where you say, Lord, I've lived my life my own way. It's not painted or turned out the way that I want. I'm going to turn to you, Jesus Christ. Believing that you died in my place for my sins. Trusting in you and living my life following you. Can I give one more word to the dads this morning? Men, your family wants you to make that decision. Your family wants you to turn your life to Jesus Christ and say, I unapologetically will follow you and lead my family in a godly direction. And I'd give you one passage to hold on to as we close. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. It says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, Immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. No work will ever not accomplish God's purpose. As you labor alongside God, he empowers you to step out, to jump in, to make an impact. Will you? I don't know what piece God has laid in front of you, but he's laid something for you to step into? Will you? Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. And Lord, I thank you for the book of Esther. A life that is, that is surrounded by tragedy, that's surrounded by crisis, and, and, and not like our own lives. And Lord, you brought this woman from obscurity to a place of prominence, and you gave her an opportunity to step out. And Lord, you've done the same thing in our lives. Our prominence may not be as high as Esther's, but you've given us people to impact. And Lord, I pray that we might be men and women who rise to the challenge, not because there's something within us, but because you have given us works to walk in, and you're empowering us to step out in faith. So Lord, I pray for every man and woman here, that you would give them the courage step out, to take a turning point. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You guys have a great morning.